Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is retired Chief Petty Officer Tony Woody, who during his near-death experience was taken to the throne room of God, and today we're going to learn about it. Tony, thank you for joining me, and welcome. A pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. All right, Tony, if you don't mind, let's just start on the day that it happened and go from there. I was stationed in Barbers Point, Hawaii in 1982. Uh, uh, actually, I got there in 81, but this incident happened in 1982. Um, and we were doing what's called a rim pack ex- exercises. It happens every two years. Rim of the Pacific, that's what that means. Uh, it's the largest military exercise on the planet. And they, it's so big, it takes two years to, to get ready for the next one. And so it was my crew's turn to go out and fly a mission. I'm in a large four-engine heavyweight airplane called a P-3 Orion. It's primarily designed for tracking submarines. Uh, so we were going to go out and do a mission. We had full crew, full full everything. We were max allowable takeoff weight, uh, full load of fuel, full everything. And so when we got to altitude, we were climbing out to altitude. And we got to about 10,000 feet. We had a chips light come on on number one. It means on the number one engine, which means it's making metal inside the engine somewhere. And the magnet caught it, completed the signal to make the light come on to let us know we got to shut the engine down before we have a catastrophic failure. So we did that because we were heavy. We had to dump fuel because you have a max allowable lamb weight that we were exceeding. So we had to get rid of some fuel. And even still, we had to fly around for probably half an hour, 45 minutes to get down to max allowable land weight. Uh, so we don't damage the structural integrity of the airplane if we land too hard. And then uh, because we're heavy, we're coming in a lot faster than normal. Uh, to give you an idea of the difference in the weight of the aircraft, we would normally land with 8,000 pounds of fuel on board when we were done with a mission. This time we had 42,000 pounds. So we're coming in fast and hot uh and an engine out and we expected to swerve to the right we briefed all of that because you have two engines on one side on the right side pulling harder than the left because you only have one engine over there so you know you're going to swerve that way so we briefed that and to correct with the rudder and get back on center line we talk about all that before we make a landing it's part of the emergency landing brief and uh so everything was fine we're coming in on approach or we're landing on runway 040 left which is uh the left runway parallel runways on a 040 heading so we're landing on four left nose gear comes down and i mean the land main mount comes down everything seems fine and nose gear comes down uh and within a second or two we immediately departed the runway and we're doing 135 knots when this happened that's a little over 155 miles an hour so when that happened, when, when you start, when things go wrong at those speeds, it happens fast. And um, so all of a sudden, because we're having an emergency landing, we've got air, uh, uh, fire trucks on the side of the runway. There's six of them out there. And so as you go by each set, of, they would pull in behind you and then the next two and so on. And uh, uh, But we never got that far. 
as we were departing the runway, you know, normally you want them out there, but this turned out to be not a good thing that day. And we're headed straight at one of the fire trucks. And I knew I was about to die. There was no question. I had no nothing I could do about it. All I could think about was my family. I had a two and a half, three-year-old son at home. And I, I was thinking I'd never see my son again. This was, uh, you will not believe how much goes through your mind in, when you know you've got seconds left, if that. And uh, the next thing I know, things got really strange at that point, And I didn't understand what was happening to me at all. The next thing I know, I'm out of the airplane, looking down at everything from about probably 30, 40 feet up. I can see all the fire trucks, the runways. I can see us leaving the runway. I can see the fire truck that we just missed everything. And uh, I saw this. I could see the guy on top of the fire, uh, fire truck that operated the water cannon. I could see him screaming at the top of his lungs, terrified thinking he was wondering. I wish I had talked to him later, but I never thought to go do that to see what he experienced, but it just never crossed my mind. But when that happened, uh, I I could see everything. This, and I don't know, uh, We as we were coming up to that fire truck, you got a number four propeller spinning on the right uh, side of the, the outboard engine on the right side. We're moving forward at over 155 miles an hour the prop's 13 feet in diameter from tip to tip, weighs 2,200 pounds, is spinning at around at, at a, a thousand and twenty rounds a minute. And the me outside witnessed the propeller blade, two of the four propeller blades, gap the front and then the back edge of that corner of that fire truck as the plane went over the truck, as the wing went over the truck, and barely missed it. And then as we got on the asphalt and and was he's still going into reverse thrust there was dust and debris and everything went up in the air and there was this we're on a part of the room uh the asphalt between runways where there's not supposed to be planes or vehicles or anything out there right so there's more debris and stuff that collects out there because they don't go clean all that up they just clean the runways and taxiways off right so while we're out there, all this debris and everything blew up and there was this Pepsi can flew by the window and I'm seeing everything in slow motion now, all of a sudden, I don't understand what's going on. And I could see this Pepsi can tumbling. I could see the fluid coming out. And then when it atomized because of all the wind that was hitting it, it's just atomized this brown fluid, dirty brown fluid. I think it was just dirty water, it looked like. Uh, I, I could, I suddenly became where all of these droplets of water war were two plus the other two perspectives i had from out of the plane and in the flight engineer seat still and the me in the flight engineer seat by the way was still terrified and the me outside that was looking down before i bilocated into many more places uh was just observing totally just observing you know <laughs> nothing to be upset about right <laughs> that's that's how it felt um so where was I? The um, I'm well, seeing everything in super slow motion. I'm seeing the Pepsi can fly by. And then I start, uh, and then all this dust and debris in the air. And everywhere there's any debris, it's all rolling and wrapping. That's where I am. I'm, I'm every one of these things. There's millions of them, right? And I'm totally confused now. And I, I don't understand anything. I don't know if I'm dead. 
I don't know if I'm still alive. I don't know anything. I just know I'm confused and scared. Part of me is. The other part's just fascinated. Uh, but anyway, um, we're, we're still going all the way across to the other runway. We haven't stopped yet. And all of this is going on. And then I hear uh, Lieutenant Duffy in the right seat, co-pilot, yelling at the pilot, Lieutenant Lovegren. And he tells Lieutenant Lovegren, get on the brakes. Get on the brakes. You better get on the infant brakes. <laughs> and, and that's when Lovegren finally hammered on the brakes, uh, too. She got reverse thrust, but he hit the brakes also to help us stop. And we literally went all the way over to the other runway and went half on, half off. And there's a slope there where the water runs off and when it rains. So we're the nose gear and the right main mount are up on the up on the runway. The left main mount's not. We're kind of sitting there at an angle by the time we stop. When we stop, the plane kind of lurched to a stop when it was on the brakes, right? And that in that instant, all of these outer experiences did that. And I'm sitting there going. What the hell was that? You know, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm still on an adrenaline rush, right? And then I looked, I looked at Lieutenant Duffy, Duffy, and he's still looking out the window out straight. And then I watched him slump when he came off his adrenaline rush, and uh, and that's about when I came off mine. And I'm, you know, I was strong, healthy, physically fit, extremely physically fit. 24 year old at the time and I was just flat out wiped out exhausted it felt like I just ran five marathons back to back without any rest that's exactly what it felt like it was just wiped out and then I looked at Duffy I'm looking at Duffy and he looks at me and uh you know to this day I still can't not sure if I actually said something or not I remember thinking it if I didn't even if I didn't say it but I'm looking at him going wondering if he saw what I saw. He had the same thing happen. I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do, right? And and before I could really say anything to him, I think he uh, he's looking at me. And then we hear this noise behind, I hear the noise behind me. And this Lieutenant Lovegren still at, you know, he's got his hands on the yoke. And I hear this noise, woo, 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 three times. And, and Duffy looks past me and I look, to my left to see what Lieutenant Lovgren's doing. And he's he's still on his adrenaline rush. He's white knuckling the yoke in his hands. And he's trying to say something and he's stressed out. You can see it. And he's going, Whoa, what? and he finally goes, what the did I do wrong? You know, <laughs> and I'm just like, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, I'm just shaking my head that we just experienced all of that and made it. Oh, sorry. And, uh, um, after that, we added power. We figured out nothing was wrong with the airplane. The fire trucks caught up to us and everything. And after a few minutes, we realized the plane was okay. And we literally added power and rolled off and went to the end of the runway and uh, back to the hangar. So I literally used two entirely different runways to make one landing and one approach. <laughs> don't recommend that. <laughs> Even if you have the front row seats, you don't want to be doing that. <laughs> So uh, I, I had to deal with that after I went home and just trying to understand, right? And then, I, and then I realized the next morning I'm on the flight schedule again, you know, 
And uh, turns out the skipper, my commanding officer in that command, uh, VP6 Blue Sharks is where I was at, um, he took me and my the pilot, Lieutenant Lovgren, that made the bad landing out again. And, you know, back back then, they just put you back on the saddle and see if you can ride. They Nowadays, they take you to a, psych war, a psychiatric evaluation first and before they let you back out in the airplane. But, you know, back then, they just put you back in the saddle and see if you could ride, you know. And uh, I didn't had never experienced anything like this. I didn't know anything about post-traumatic stress. That wasn't even a term yet back in 1980s. And uh, but here we are, make the takeoff. Everything's normal. Then we come in for our first approach on the runway on the four left, same same runway I was coming in on yesterday, the day before. Right. And I start having this panic attack in the seat. Now, the skipper's on my right and he's a little bit ahead of me. But uh, my job on on landing is to lean forward, have my hand on the power lever, one set of them. And in case they call for a wave off, you know, if there's a truck or on the runway or something out there in the way, you're going to go around, you know, and that's my job to set power. So I lean forward instead of sitting up in the, in the chair on approach and then on short final and get really close. Then I would lean in. Usually I couldn't look out anymore. I had to lean in and hide my face in the skipper and not look outside because I was not my head was not in the game. I was not, I shouldn't have been in the air, um, but I didn't have a choice then. And so I didn't, I couldn't let the skipper know or see me at my, cause I knew if he saw me, I would never fly again. I just instinctively knew that. And so I had to work my way, way through it. I already had like 3,500 hours flight time, I think around that time. So I'm like, Tony, you've done this a thousands of times. You got to get your head back in the game and just, and I had to get put at work through it in the, in the plane. After three or four landings, I was fine, and I never had that problem again. I uh, ended up tacking on another 6,500 flight hours after that. Ended up with over 10,000 flight hours. But um, that was on a Tuesday. So Monday was the flight where we ran off the runway. Tuesday was the refly. Wednesday, I'm watching a TV show. I know this sounds unrelated, but I know they're connected somehow. I just don't understand how. Uh, but I'm watching a television show with my wife uh, called That's Incredible. Back then it came on and they had a show with a, a guy on there. And you can still find his video on YouTube. His name is Leslie Limke, L-E-M-K-E, I think that's spelled. Uh, he was, he, his mother was telling the story and she was on the show where he had had a, uh, she had had a dream and, and uh, she was told by Christ, I think she said, Jesus, that she would be offered three children for adoption in the future. And she's to take the baby boy that was blind. Well, that happened. And not only did she do that, as he grew up, it became obvious and apparent he had a severe mental dif dif uh, ment uh, brain, brain injuries or something, but he had no cognitive skills beyond that of a newborn, basically all of his life. He wasn't talking. He wasn't doing any of that. So here he is a young adult. Now she had to lead him around the house and just everything for him. As, a as if he were a baby. So one night she hears music downstairs in the middle of the night and she thinks somebody left the radio or the TV on. She goes downstairs to turn it off and here's Leslie sitting at the piano playing gospel music and singing beautifully. And then they introduced him and brought him out there. He didn't talk to anybody, but they set him down in front of a piano and, and then he started playing and his voice was fantastic. It was, I, I call it a hauntingly holy voice and it penetrated my heart. And I was just, I knew I was seeing a miracle. I thought I was seeing my first miracle. That's what I thought. Uh, 
I I didn't know everything's a miracle back then at 24 years old. I now understand there's nothing that isn't a miracle. But back then, I didn't know that. So I'm just grateful for seeing a real miracle. You know, I'd always believed in God, but that to me was proof. And uh, I was going to get the proof later. Didn't know that (laughs) that very night. So that night, I went to bed and just said a simple 10-second little prayer in my head. I'm like, you don't expect anything, right? Just a little prayer in your head. I didn't even say it out loud, you know? So I'm laying in the bed. I wasn't even on my knees. I'm just laying in bed on the pillow. And I just told God how grateful I was for the miracle I was shown today. And then I added the words, be careful, careful what you ask for. (laughs) And Lord, it'd be nice if you could do something like that for me someday. And that you don't really expect anything out of a little prayer like that, but I threw it out there, right? And uh, went to sleep pretty quickly. Uh, then all of a sudden, it was, I, I didn't know the time till later, but it was probably around 3, 3.30 in the morning. We called it O-Dark 30 in the military. Uh, I didn't go through a tunnel. I didn't physically die. I didn't do any of that. But, but all of a sudden, it was just... Boom, I had an instantaneous shift in my location of my consciousness, which was similar to what happened on the Monday before, but very different because I was taken to the throne room of creation. And all of a sudden, I'm staring at this liquid, molten, golden, white, living light uh, of the lotus flower flame of God's immortal love unfolding and pouring out into the whole universe and blasting through me filling me up with love. And I was dumbfounded. I had no idea love could be like that. I clearly knew I was in the presence of my creator because you can't not know that when you're there. And everything that was of God's essence was blasting through me and making me one with it. And I said three words. I said, oh my goodness. The instant I said the word goodness, divine goodness exploded within me. Rip through everything of me that existed me on an infinite scale. And all of these were emotions coming from God's heart, expressing to me what God felt about me, for me. And I was so precious to God. I knew how, I, I knew my best analogy about how, how precious all of us are to God as an individual is that. This is the best analogy I've been able to come up with. Imagine it's the end of the life of the entire history of the universe. And I was being loved, held, and cradled by every mother in every galaxy, in every time that ever existed all at once. And... uh, That analogy actually stinks. It doesn't come close at all, and it never will. I could talk like that billions and billions and billions of years nonstop, 24 hours, 7, and I still won't even scratch the surface of the truth of God's love and what it's like. Um, that's the best I can do. And so uh, the next thing I remember, I'm, I'm, I see these like hands, the back of hands, 
or something. I see hand at the back, but I can see hands up, you know, kind of like, like you would raise your hands up, right? I see these hands up there to the side in my peripheral vision. I'm looking at the light. It was all I wanted to do was go deeper in the light. It, there's no, I couldn't think about my wife or my son. None of that. You're just overwhelmed with it so much that nothing else can come into your mind. Uh, oh, sorry, it, it affects me still to this day. <laughs> wow. Um, the love is fantastic. I just had no idea. And uh, so I saw the hands and then all I wanted to do was focus on the light. I didn't care about the hands. Um, but then after that, the rest of the room started coming into my peripheral vision. But the wall at the end of the bed is still gone. I mean, there's no wall there. Part of the ceiling of the wall. It's, I've got God in my bedroom. It's like a billion stars in there. And through my peripheral vision, I could see my wife's feet and I'd tell that she had her back to me the way she was, her feet were positioned. And I remember thinking, how can she sleep through this? You know, it's like a billion stars in here. There's no way she can sleep through this. And then it hit me. This is real. <laughs> I've got God in my bedroom and I knew it. And, and the moment God knew, I knew, and it wasn't, uh, and I knew because I know God did that because he knows I'm an engineer. And if it hadn't happened that way, I would have probably written it all off as a, some sort of exotic dream. Right. But I couldn't do that because I'm seeing it. I'm sitting up in the bedroom and it's happening. And then the, and then the instant I realized it, it didn't go away instantly. It took like a couple of seconds. But the outer edges, it went from like a circle closing. It just went. And then when it did that. My heart broke. because I've just lost the greatest love I'll ever know got ripped away from me. And I wasn't told why I wasn't allowed to stay. I wasn't told why that happened to me. I wasn't told any of that. I wasn't told anything. And that was really difficult. So, but when I, when it did that and what was left was this uh, like residual energy light in the wall, this still dark, right? And I can see that. And I just sat there crying hoping it would come back because that's all that I had left of the light was what was in the wall that I could see. And for like over two hours, I just wished it back and cried the whole time. And then when my wife woke up, she looks at me and goes, you know, what's wrong with you? And I told her everything and, you know, and I think she believed me, but because she's never seen me do that before. You know, I was, that's not the kind of thing a flight engineer does is wake up in the middle of the night and, and just cry, you know. <laughs> um, and then I told her, and then the next Sunday I went to the church because I needed answers. You know, I'm an engineer. I, I need to understand what happened to me. And uh, and so I went to the pastor. Uh, I was a guest pastor that week after the church uh, service was over. And told him everything. I was crying about it because it was very emotional. It took me decades to be able to tell that story without just flat out busting out crying and not being able to finish it. Uh, it's so overwhelming. But he didn't he didn't do anything. He looked at me, kind of tilted his head and, and looked at me in an odd fashion and then turned his back on me and walked off. 
didn't say a word. And I'm begging for answers and help. And so I was dumb, stunned at first. And then I walked away and then, because I didn't know what else to do. Uh, and then I got angry about it. But then the following Sunday, a week later after that, I went to a different church because I'm not going to give up. I needed answers. And so we're at this different church. It was a much bigger church, uh, closer to the base. So there were a lot of military people who went there. But I didn't think about that. I was going there just to get answers. And so we're sitting out in the pews, and uh, there's this period of time where the, the pastor said, any, any concerns out there? So I'm getting ready to stand up. You know, and I want to, the whole, it's like 500 people in this big church. And my wife grabs my arm by my wrist, you know, and with, with literally with both hands. And I'm like, I'm trying to get up and she won't let me get up. And I'm like, let go of me. And the old church saw it and heard it because I basically yelled it out. you know. And then I asked the pastor what I was going to ask him. And I got a pat answer that I knew he didn't know the answer. Uh, and then I'm, we left the church and out in the parking lot, a lieutenant commander for, who was a pilot from another squadron that was next to us who knew that I was air crew and knew I was military came up to me and said, you know, you might not want to talk about that anymore because if you do, you're probably going to lose your security clearance and they might kick you out of the Navy and you're never going to fly again. And that was it. I clammed up. And so in one week, basically a little over, I had my pastor and my wife and, and the Navy in, in their own different ways telling me I needed to shut up about this. So I did. But that doesn't work either. Um, and I just got angry over the years and just ended up affecting my life very badly. Uh, ended up in divorce. It's not uncommon that people that have uh, spiritual experiences end up with a divorce or uh other problems which i had as well but um i had to work through all of that basically on my own and so it was about 20 over 20 years before i really talked about it again and the first time i talked about it was uh i was asked to speak at a event down in virginia beach and that's when i started i just made a decision that i could go i was going to go serve god and tell my story it didn't matter anymore and uh, so that's what I'm doing. Well, Tony, thank you for sharing your experiences. Has the memory of either the, the experience on the plane or the experience in your room faded over the years? No, not at all. It's, as a matter of fact, I, I meditate now, and that's, where I, that's what I meditate on is the light. I, I, I can bring that back. I can feel the energy go through me again. As a matter of fact, I still have spiritual things happening to me, uh, not just me, but other people around me. And this all started, again, having things happen to me after I started. A, a lady got in touch with me named Lilia, and she she asked me if I had ever heard of St. Germain, G-E-R-M-A-I-N. And I had not. And uh, so she was telling me about how the St. Germain uh, – series of books called the i am discourses explain how that energy that i experienced and how life in the universe actually works so i started looking at these uh, books and it says in the beginning it says if you practice these principles in these books they will prove themselves to you and they did and i'm gonna i'm gonna prove that to you with my cell phone <laughs> 
And I sent you this information already and you can put it in later, but I want to explain what happened. This happened in 2018. I'm getting a massage from my massage therapist and I'm telling her about these books. And I'm, and I'm very excited because I'd found a passage in one of the books that explained, uh, well, first of all, let me get back to it. So I'm getting a massage from her and she's working on my right hip and thigh and I'm laying on my back and I'm telling her about these books. And I said, I found a line in these books that describe the light perfectly. Exactly. I've been looking for well over 30 years and this one sentence perfectly described the light. And I told her, I said, it called it the liquid molten golden white living light. The instant I said the word light, divine peace and light expanded and exploded in my body. And all I could do is drop my head on the table and cry. Just like what happened decades ago when the light went through me then. And uh, it went on for many seconds, which is a long time. And uh, and then when it stopped, I wiped my eyes off and I looked up at Rosalind and she hadn't moved. Now, she's seven months pregnant, by the way, going to have a baby boy. I got to tell you that. So uh, I'm look, I look up at her and her eyes are wide open. Her face is wet, too. And she had been crying. And I said, did you feel that? And she goes, uh-huh. And Noah did, too. <laughs> a few days later, I found a a passage in the books that I study, the I Am Discourses, the St. Germain series, uh, that perfectly described what happened to us, and I sent it to her. And then uh, this is a, a, a year and a half or so later, I'm trying to find it again. I, I got too many pictures on my phone, right? I couldn't find it. And I, I texted her and I asked her for it. And this is what I said. This is on July 9th, 2020. Hi, Rosalind. This is about a year and a half after we had our experience. Hi, Rosalind. Do you remember that picture of a page of information I texted you a long while back <clears throat> describing what happened to me, you, and Noah when the infinite power of divine peace blasted through all three of us the last time I got a massage from you? I mean, how more specific can I get, right? <laughs> and I said, please let me know, uh, blah, blah, blah. Hope you're doing well. Uh, my eternal friend in the light, God bless you and your family. Before she could respond, I found it. and. And she responds, if you can see that, she responds with a heart emoji uh, to it. And then she says, I love this. Two more sentences. It says, I love this with a heart emoji. And then another message that says, and it's so relevant for me now. Then I send back and say, me too. It's a deep comfort knowing we are, eat, uh, <clears throat> we are watched over. And in the end, everything and everyone will be raised into that state of perfect peace we each had blast through us three years ago. This moment... That moment we experienced is seared into my consciousness forever now. I'm pretty sure it did that to you, too. God bless you and your family, Rosalind. She puts a heart emoji by that post and then comes back and says, God, God bless to you and your family as well. Tony, I'm grateful to know you. Gives the prayer emoji and another heart emoji. She's not saying, you know, are you crazy? Is there something wrong with you? And this is what I send her. This to you. <clears throat> Talking about the ascended masters that St. Germain is, and there are many other ascended masters. Jesus is one of them. They're working together to help bring mankind up out of this place of chaos that we've all created together. Uh, anyway, they say this, and this is what happened to us. When we come, we come to charge you with more of the power and victory of the sacred fire. Therefore, you will be enfolded in more of that sacred fire from our octave, the frequency of existence, right? 
At the same time, your own mighty I am presence will expand more of its sacred fire through you to bring you permanent illumination, inner and outer. When I say inner and outer, I mean not only your mental and feeling world, but your actual flesh structure of your bodies and the atmosphere about you. These things have to be accomplished gradually because in your present vibratory action of the outer world, you could not stand the sudden charge of all the power of the sacred fire that is around our ascended master bodies. We were visited by an ascended master. That was divine peace that we experienced. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That's who it was. Have you noticed after your experiences that you have any change in cognitive abilities that could be considered psychic? I have um, the, I get these deja vus and I know something changed. I won't know what it is, but I know something's changed spiritually. I don't exactly understand what they are, but they're powerful. And as a matter of fact, one of them happened that was so powerful one day a couple of years back that I called my friend Lilia and I said, did you feel that? And she goes, yes. <laughs> Myself and several of our group here were just praying for you and for your, I can't remember what all she was talking about, but it was something that to be accomplished in the future for me to help me. And whatever it was, I, I think what those uh, deja vu moments are, or kind of like a, a pathway down a certain time path just got established. And then there's no choices anymore. It's like going there and it's, you don't hear a clap, but it's like, it's a shock. You can feel it in your body. You know, something changed. Everything changed. Although it all looks the same. I don't even know how to put that in words, but so I have those things happen. I can, I can sense when I'm supposed to talk to somebody and when I'm not, uh, as far as about spiritual matters, uh, or who would be receptive. I can, I just can sense that. Now, as a matter of fact, just two days ago, I went in to go, uh, at the seacoast float to get a float we float on the salt water right and there was this young young girl there at working there i'd never met her before <laughs> and as soon as we looked at each other i knew something was supposed to happen and then later we she starts talking to me and it turns out she's got abilities and she was telling me about uh where she was able to put her hands on someone and that freaked them out because all of a sudden they had a blast of light in their vision and they jumped up off the table what'd you do to me <laughs> and so all she said all i was doing was putting my hands on them and saying in my mind jesus be with you jesus be with you jesus be with you over and over and over again so i want to go talk to her some more i still think there's something she and i are supposed to talk about or do or i don't know yet but there's something going on there i'm going to go find out um yeah <laughs> when you have the experience in your bedroom do you feel like in that space that opened up to you is it more real than what we are living in now oh yeah there's there's nothing here that's that dynamically real uh it's just so different it's just the environment itself just the, the way uh, i wish there are no words it just aren't it never will be <laughs> it's something that has to be experienced but we have free will and we have to call in that light to to 
you know, asking you shall receive, right? You don't ask, you don't receive anything. You keep getting the same old chaos we create. So what I've learned through these books, hang on, let me say something. That's how the energy comes to us. And it comes through our head, into our heart, and then we manifest the, our creations and co-create with God. But what we do is we allow our discordant thoughts, discordant thoughts to get in the way. And we requalify that perfect energy that if we would just get out of the way, it would manifest perfection for us, right? Before our very eyes. I know perfection exists because I experienced it. I was there. So I flat out know perfection is possible. It's just a matter of getting there and staying there. And uh, these books teach how to do that through decrees that are purposely designed to call in the light. The more light you bring in, the more your crystal cup gets filled up. And when your cup runneth over, that's all of our destinies. We are all going to be raised up into and become ascended masters. It doesn't mean you're a master of, it means you can, you're a master of the forces of the universe that God allows us to use. And once we earn the right to use it with great power comes great responsibility. We're not going to be given that responsibility till we're ready for it. But it's each one of our own individual choices to do that and to draw in the light. And the best way I've ever found to do it is with these books and these decrees. Just by far. I don't, I tell you what, Jeff. For over 30 years, I went through religion after religion after religion, trying to find answers. Dozens of them. Many of them had the same standards of the uh, the principles that matched with some of the standards that I experienced in the light. I knew the standard because I was there. So I knew what I was looking for. I just didn't know what it was going to look like when I found it. But it found me, basically, when Lilia contacted me. I still don't know how she got my email address and asked me to call her. I'm glad I did. So that was decades of seeking. And as soon as I would find any man-made agenda in any of these books, I would put it away. So that's it. Half a lie is a total lie, right? Uh, so I'm, I didn't want to look at that anymore. And uh, sorry about that. Um, so I kept seeking. And then when I got these books, and had these experiences happen to me, and I instantly knew by reading some of the lines, like uh, uh, the Great Silent Chamber was another another description of the throne room of creation. I instantly understood what that meant. No book anywhere ever that I'd ever read had had used those words ever, the Great Silent Chamber. But I immediately understood it because when I was there, I don't know if you meditate, you probably do. But when you meditate, you think you're having you're in a perfectly quiet environment. Is it perfectly quiet? Really? Is there do you hear your heartbeat? Do you hear your own breathing? You're going to hear something. Not there. It was absolute, total quiet. No sound whatsoever. That's God's peace. And it's never going to be interrupted by man's chaotic experiences or thoughts. So. Um, you know, that's that's the state that I was looking for. And that was the answers I was looking for. And when I found these books and they described it those ways, I, I'm, that's it. I'm not I'm done seeking. And I've been studying these books now for a little over eight years.
and I don't, I don't seek anymore. There's your answer. Before, I, while you were in the throne room with God, do you also feel like you were being healed as well? There was no healing necessary. I was one with everything. So it was, I was in a state of perfection. My consciousness, my, I don't, I felt like I had a body, but I never saw a part of my body. You know what I mean? <clears throat> I felt like me, other than all the other energy that was going through, I was still me. Um, but I didn't feel like I was, I needed healing. I was, I was already perfected. I, I get, I don't know how to put it in words other than that. There's no healing necessary when you're in the light because, because the light compels everything to be as of itself. To, it, it compels perfection and, uh, and nothing can resist that ever. So there's no healing necessary in the throne room of creation. <laughs> Everything's been perfected. You then I, got, I got sent back and then I'm, now I'm not. So I want to be able to hold that place. I couldn't hold it and stay there. And, uh, but I'm working on it. <laughs> After I'm going back. I was home, by the way. I knew I was home. It felt like home. I knew I'd been there before. I knew that was home. Just knew it. So. After all your searching religiously and possibly spiritually, where are you now and what religious and or spiritual principles do you live by? It's the uh, many, many different aspects to that and they're explained in the uh saint germain series i am discourses books that you can get them at saint germain uh press saint germain press.com uh germain is g-e-r-m-a-i-n there's no e on the end of it so saint germain press.com and then look for the books and look for the saint germain uh series and you'll find it there's 20 of those books the first three books explain how the rest of them and how they all came into being and what they uh what they're teaching so um it's not that simple of an answer you know and uh like I, when i was there though there's no space or time and i don't even know how to explain that either uh but here it takes time you know we have to spend the time and effort to to go seek and learn and grow but i've not had a, a need to go seek for anything else since your experience have you ever received downloads of information uh unless you consider that blast through me and my massage therapist that day that could have been a download that's what it felt like something changed in my body at that point i mean it went through my whole body talking about enfolded in the light it's literally it was every cell in my body and my consciousness was overwhelmed with that um, so whatever God was doing, he changed something in me, uh, for whatever purposes, I guess I'll find out later when I go home, but, uh, mainly because he loves me <laughs> and, and he literally picked the moment that I said the word light, right? So start studying and learning about light. It's all about light and the properties of light. Light is in, is not just light. It's an intelligent substance. It's the most intelligent substance in existence. When I was in the throne room of creation, I, ex I experienced this. Infinite power that was 
perfectly balanced under absolute control. Infinite wisdom and intelligence, they're one and the same because you can't have one without the other. And infinite unconditional love, all being expressed on a cosmic scale. And, and that's our destiny. And then someday we will be able to uh, aid and assist all the other humans that are still left behind here that are trying to find their way home. Because I'm getting off that wheel of life, not doing this over and over and over again. So that's what happens every time we don't punch our way through and get back home and stay there. We have to do this over and over and over again, start over and relearn again. I'm, I'm not doing that. I can do more help for mankind up there sending the power that I experienced down to them to help them come home than I can here. But while I'm here, I'm going to tell my story and hope people listen. Uh, that's what I'm doing. Since you experienced the love <clears throat> that we're all searching for, how do you in your earthly life not compare earthly relationships to that type of love and lower your expectations of earthly love? Uh, I don't know that it's I lower my expectations. It's probably that I accept the limitations of being here. There are no limitations in the light. It, none. It's literally magic. I don't even know any other word to call it. Um, the magic presence, it, it's, it's real. I just read to you on my cell phone, and you're going to put that data up later proving that. That's the most tangible evidence, evidence most people are going to be able to see that God really is acting overtly in my life and, and people around me. And that's what these books teach. I, I, I'm just, my sole goal is to get back home and stay there and then, and then get to go do whatever they're doing, you know, as ascended masters. And many of them are doing things like creating entire systems of worlds. And then there's life comes out of that. And then, being their director of their life streams and bringing them to a place of love too. It's just, it never ends. It's just expansion and light, light just always expanding. And yeah. <laughs> How do you explain infinity? You know, do you feel that since your consciousness was taken out of your body, that that fundamentally changed something within you where you, are able to contact the light easier than the oh, rest yeah. of us. I don't know about the rest of you, but I know I can. It's a whole lot easier than before that. Because um, I know the path. I mean, I know the, I know what I'm looking for. Um, and I've been there. So all I have to do is visualize it again. It's, it's about our consciousness, right? This is literally all about our consciousness level and where the frequency of our consciousness is determines the world we exist in so um and we're here this is a this whole place is a school for love lessons that's what it is and we're here excuse me to learn how to love unconditionally like the light does and then we can be there forever in that mode of pure love so I don't know how else to put it in words. It's, it's more than just the consciousness. It's the heart. It's the heart first. Our consciousness and our, our emotions together are powerful manifestors, especially the emotions. 
that's what I've had to learn to do is to, you know, be better at controlling my emotions and just, uh, there's nothing to fear really. So once I learned that, I was able to just push everything bad that ever happened away from me and say, no, none of that really happened because this is all an illusion. So I have nothing to be angry about. I have nothing to be um, upset about. I'm, everything's fine. So that's how I choose to view things. No matter what I'm going through, it's fine because it's what my life stream needs and is being brought to me to bring me my love lessons. And I need to be aware. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to download the new Bumble now. What lesson am I trying to learn here? What's being what lessons being brought to me so that I can get past it and uh, go for the next one, I guess. <laughs> Until one day we blossom and, and just, I know what the beginnings of ascension feels like. You know, my goal is to ascend without ever going through that thing called death again. That's a possibility. That was happening to me and my massage therapist and her unborn baby. So if God wants to finish that and boom, turn me into an ascended master without ever passing through death again, that can happen. Yes, sir. It would be fascinating to catch up with her and see if her baby now, what type of, you know, life he's, he's living in, and has he had any special things happen to him during his lifetime since that experience? He's only four right now, so uh, you can't really probably articulate that yet, yeah. but, <laughs> but I'm glad that I was able to, that those text messages I read to you. I'm glad that all happened because now Rosalind and I emailed it all to her too. I said, save this for uh, Noah when he's old enough to understand and let him see what happened. So that's, that's a legacy that, you know, that's perfect. How, how cool is that <laughs> for him? You know, <laughs> I wish I'd had something like that when I was mm -hmm. a kid growing up. Yeah. Tony, after watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions. Are you up for that? I have a Facebook page. Yeah, they can. Tony Woody is the Facebook page. Do you have anything that you're working on that you want us to know about? Uh, not working on, but something I was a part of. Um, let me get, get it out of my bag. Um, a few years ago, back in 2019, <clears throat> I was asked to write my story up in writing. <clears throat> it's actually just a 300 word summary at first. Excuse me. That was the uh, they didn't want a bunch of people were submitting stories, right? Thousands, so they they wanted to keep it short for the summary. And so mine was one of the eighteen stories that got selected for this article. I don't know if you can read it. This is uh, healthcare after a near death experience. Is that coming through or that yes. backwards? No, it's okay. fine. And that's a magazine that's that's. Um, that the Johns Hopkins University uses to do quarterly narrative inquiry and bioethics for the frontline providers. And they give feedback. And then they were and what they did in 2000, this was March of 2000 when this came out. So the feedback 
that they're getting is going to be utilized to create a medical school curriculum and clinical protocols for near-death experience patients. There's 18 people's stories in here, and mine's one of them. And uh, you can download this for free. Just Google those words, healthcare, healthcare after a near-death experience. And I'll send you the link, too, if you want to put that up with everything. You can do that, too. Hmm. I'll email that to you. So that's one of the things that's come out of this that I'm happy to see happen, you know, and help people. So there's a lot of frontline providers don't understand. It's just about education. They don't, many of them don't even know what a near-death experience is or means, much less the fact that there's extremely profound after effects when you have one. And if they're not handled properly uh, by frontline providers, it can cause a moral injury on top of everything else, which is exactly what I went through. And uh, so that's, I'm happy that we can get this out there and so start educating the world about uh, how to treat people after they've had a potentially near-death experience so they don't make it worse. It'd be interesting to see what protocols they came up with. Uh, they're not done yet. I think they're still taking the feedback. So these things take time. That's about two and a half years ago when they put that out there, right? A little over, Mark. Yeah, a little over that. So I would think it's going to be, you know, two or three more years before that happens. But uh, it's a long process. But it's happening. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Go be love. Never stop being love. You can't go wrong that way. You just can't. I, I, it's that simple. It really is. Just go be love. Tony, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest. My pleasure. Thanks. God bless. God bless, God bless you. everyone. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.